HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Here today with Hugh Atchison. I'm Michael Harlan Turkel, your host. Um, Hugh's hailing from Athens, Georgia. Come up to New York uh, for this great new cookbook, uh, New Turn in the South. Um, lucky enough to have a copy in front of me, and I read it from cover to cover, and like literally read it from cover to cover. There's so much not just amazing recipes, but the pace, the kind of canter of the whole thing is just this slow and steady speed that just makes you want to sit down and sip some sweet tea. Yeah, it it was very much uh, meant to be a reflection of the, you know, we all live in communities and it's a reflection of mine. Yeah. Mine is Athens, Georgia, and it's a, it's a certain cadence to the life there and canter, you're right. Yeah. It's just the way it is. But and so. Athens, Georgia wasn't your community growing up you're 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 a canadian yeah Yeah. i'm a canuck so i'm from (laughs) ottawa but i grew up in ottawa and then went to uh, university for a little stint in montreal and lived in montreal for a while and but you know when i was uh, between 10 and 14 ish i lived in the states so i lived in atlanta and clemson south carolina so got a taste of what southern living was and eventually um, my wife is from the south so we moved down there and uh you know it was it was just always uh it's such an amazingly rich place um, in so many ways. And, uh, you know, my my father-in-law is a very Southern academic and uh, watching the sort of pace at which he lives his life and then thinking about Southern academics and writers yeah. and, and cooks. And uh, it's just a different world from anywhere else in the United States. Did he have uh, shoulder and elbow pads? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, he had the full-on, like, English professor yeah. uniform. And that's what he did at Clemson University. So, um, you know, it's it's fun to, to 
look at the South and then culinary looks at the South as this amazing tome of, of interest and knowledge. And it's not always pretty to look at Southern history and Southern food history because it's, it's ripped apart by racial tension and yeah. wars and, and everything. But that is the only, only identifiable culinary history in the States. I mean, we can look at other places and say, well, there's a new England crab boil and there's chowder, and then, you know, there's smoked salmon and, you know, California cuisine. But those are also nascent. Yeah. The South has this history and it's just there and it's so in-depth. So, you know, my taking of it and my understanding of it is going to be completely different from most people's because I'm this interloper, uh, never influenced by my mother's collard greens, never <laughs> influenced by, you know, that pressure. Yeah. Um, so I can go about it with like a little bit of French technique and my background in food and be like, Okay, I think this is what they mean by chicken and dumplings. Yeah. Well, I mean, did you have a Canadian background in food? Do you remember some of the, you know, uh, inherent dishes that you ate growing up? I mean, we, you know, I can remember more of this. No, growing up, I mean, I think I ate fish sticks and candy yellow beans <laughs> coming from a divorced household yeah. raised by my father. Um, my mother was a pretty good cook, but we didn't usually live with her. So, um, but in when I was young and cooking in Canada, I mean, it was very game oriented. But that was also a culture that was um, thoroughly invested in artisanal, sustainable, and local before those were co-optable cool terms. Yeah. You know, between the Gatineau Mountains next to Ottawa and the Laurentian Mountains um, going into Quebec City, there's an amazing bastion of farmers and dairies. uh, And, you know, when I worked in a restaurant in Canada, you know, the venison came in the back door and that guy also grew shiitakes and... Then the spinach would be delivered by a guy named Jean-Pierre. And yeah. then his wife, Hélène, would bring goat cheeses. And you, that was just the way of the world. And, you know, uh, luckily, we're hearkening back to that in the South. You guys are doing an amazing job in Brooklyn of sort of uh, the idea of the local sphere. I shy awake from local vor. Yeah. I, it, it's, it, all those terms are just so greenwashed and co-opted now that... You know, we're just trying to make sure that, you know, before all of that became co-optable, that's kind of what we were doing. That's how I was raised in food. Yeah. So that's a very Canadian thing. There's an intrinsic interest in food up there that's always been the case. Like you go shopping in Montreal when I was at university, you know, we'd grab four shopping bags and I would go to this place called Vieille Europe for um, coffee and smoked bacon. And then I would go across the street to Saint Laurent Boulangerie and buy rye bread. And I'd go around the corners to saint Vieter Bagel. Mm-hmm. And I go down the street and buy cheeses. And I go to the meat guy who I meets. And I go to, you know, the produce guy. And it was just how we shopped. Well, I mean, being a, well, I wouldn't call it a second class European city, but right, it, right. rather than having to go to a supermarket and get everything from one giant box, you you see your purveyors, you befriend those people. Right. So, I mean, that goes to farms and fields alike. And it does. And, it, and But just the, the, I think that teaches you a lot about where food comes from and how you create food and create dishes and how you sustain yourself and how you save money. And and it's just it's somewhat that it, what I'm preaching these days is this whole idea of taking a bit of an inconvenient route in life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're just we're you know, we just buy this stuff and consume all this stuff. That's too easy. Yeah, it's like too everything is like you were talking about making bread and stuff yeah. like that. It's like. Everything's so easy now that we don't have to think about making bread uh, in middle America and making our own bacon. Yeah. I mean, hell, they have 
pre-cooked bacon at the store now. It's like, really? <laughs> yeah. How hard was cooking bacon? Yeah. Have you ever thought about this concept of crumbled feta? Well, it's, it's as opposed to <laughs> crumbling it your well, goddamn I mean, deli slices at that point. I mean, I know, I know. not everybody has a, a you know. slicer, but still, you know, it's like, yeah, whatever happened to the deli? Yeah, you know? <laughs> that's and just a funny world. Did you realize this when you were between the ages of ten to fourteen, and you moved down to the south? That this kind of culture was surrounding you. Yeah, I I, I think so. I mean, I, and I there was a lot of those. Canadianisms in the places that I could shop in Canada in the Byward Market in Ottawa and places like that that were when I went to a lot when I was young that were that were missed in the South. But the South still had its beauty then, um, much marred by the sort of, you know, fifties to nineteen eighties of this age of the burgeoning age of convenience and packaged foods and things like that. But there was still, you know, the step grandmother coming over and making fried okra from scratch and making grits in the morning and my father or my stepfather making bread all the time. So were there, and you know, cooking of collards and fried chicken. And then my mother trying to embark on different recipes and she had no idea. (laughs) Um, So, you know, there was that Southern um, uh, unwavering sort of Southernism to food that refused to become convenience items. But, you know, I think what I'm trying to explain in the book is that Southern food doesn't stop being defined. It, it needs to continue to be defined. Yeah. You know, somebody like Paula Dean's like, you know, we need to make sure our smothered pork chop is this smothered pork chop recipe. And <laughs> yeah. then her pants fall down and she goes, ah. <laughs> um, But, you know, what I want to prove is that we can lighten Southern food and make it really cool and make it, but still have that homage and that nod to the original structure of Southern food, which is so pretty. Yeah. But the South's ever changing, too. I mean, it's becoming more worldly. We're seeing other cultures influence it all the time. There's a huge Vietnamese population around the Gulf. There's great Asian populations around Atlanta that are really influencing the food there. So, you know, in a forum the other day, I brought up, I was interviewing Paula Dean, <laughs> and I brought up the idea of making rice grits or broken kernels of long grain rice. And they were used to be kept by the Gullah community in the low country. And the whole rice in the rice economy would have been exported to Europe. But they make a, a porridge, kind of like a congee almost. Yeah. And so we take uh, of rice grits and we finish them with the pureed kim- kimchi that we make at one of the restaurants and a little bit of cream and... It's it's awesome. And Paul looked at me in this like just like I was an alien from another planet. <laughs> but I think it's important that we continue the discussion about southern food and what 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 can be great in southern food and evolve it because I think it's important to make sure it's always inclusive. Um it, because the southern food that people think is like just that gut-stopping, artery-clogging food of your it doesn't have to be that way. But there's great flavor profiles in all that food. Yeah. We just have to figure out how to make it edible again. Yeah. I mean, what, what's really cool about the book is I think you first flip through and uh, you see those staples. You see the word smothered. You see right. cane vinegar. You see yeah. ham hocks. You see collards. And you know it is a southern cookbook. But then you see these small little twists, either through technique or just you see your personality shining right. through. And yeah. You know, Southern can be redefined. It can be. And I mean, that was the biggest thing about the book is how do I get across my really strange personality into a book? And (laughs) well, it came through in doodles and, you know, uh, me just writing off the cuff statements and and hopefully how to that how to on the actual instructions of a 
of a cookbook, I think that's where a lot of cookbooks go wrong because halfway through the how-to, you're like, what the hell is this person talking about? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, this is what I've done for 25 years and half the recipes out there, I'm like, where, what do they mean? Yeah. <laughs> so we try to be really clear about that. and But also just make it food that people want to cook at home and get into the idea of, uh, you know, cooking Southern food. Yeah. So. What I also found kind of interesting um, is we, we mentioned those, you know, certain staples. Uh, there are a lot of pantry items too, kind of like, you know, uh, how to make cornbread or how to make green tomatoes. But right. then there's that little twist again, you know, green tomatoes with the pickled shrimp. Right. Um, that there are, you know, uh, an homage to grits, you know, by using Anson Mills. Right. Um, but then using them in a ton of awesome recipes in right. awesome ways. So I think part of southern cooking um is not only being honest to the ingredient and the legacy of these things but realizing who you have around you like anson mills and right supporting them just as they supported that community for years yeah which is uh, it, it was in a funny way again i think the south was one of the pioneer uh sort of food traditions that knew the names of all their farmers and knew where stuff came from and that was how people ate that back then um, and I think it's just becoming more and more so now. But that's pretty much countrywide. I mean, uh, you know, we're, we've opened that can of worms, and I'm glad we have that, you know, food, it helps to understand that food doesn't have to go through gazillion different middlemen before it hits your plate. Yeah. So to know that Charlotte and Wes were having brunch at the bar in Bar State South on Saturday, delivered and raised all the pork for the restaurant all week long, and that they're also the people that go to their neighbor and get me sorghum and broker this cheese and buy me sheep's milk. You know, it's just like, that's the beautiful small world we live in down there now. Yeah. And how many restaurants do you have right now? Three. Three. Five and ten in the National in, in Athens and then Empire State South in, in Atlanta. How many farms do you think you have supply in those three restaurants? About 35. Yeah. And I'm, yeah. I'm sure you have everyone's for, phone number. In yeah, there. for different reasons. Yeah. I mean, some of them, you know, some of them are farm slash foragers. And, um, you know, Hope Springs Farm just brings me eggs for Athens. And um, Johnson Dairy brings me dairy from South Georgia. And, you know, so it's, it's a smattering of different people doing different things. Sometimes we have to reach a little bit further. You know, we uh, there's no great country ham uh, within you know, 120 miles, but as long as we get into Madisonville, Tennessee and where, um, Alan Benton is and yeah. Colonel Newsom and all that stuff is happening up there. Um, and then we go as far North as Virginia for some stuff with lamb. Um, but you know, like, um, Sean Brock is doing at Husk, you know, we believe that the South is the South. And as long as we buy from there, we're doing right by what we're, we believe in. Yeah. So. But, you know, I've always loved about the, well, this concept of what Southern cuisine is in my mind is particular. Right. And if you don't have what you want there, you're going to go that little further, you yeah. know, that extra mile to be yeah. able to find it. And that's why you, yeah. you know, found country ham that isn't necessarily within this circumference. So. Right. Yeah. And I think it's a, I, I'm not, I'm not one to want to take the big jump towards, you know, it has to be a 60 mile radius and all this. I, I don't think we're ready for that yet. I, I, first and foremost, I cook for a community. So the community is rich and poor. Um, and I want to appeal to all those people. I want everybody to have an excuse at least once a year to come to the restaurant. So 
if I was to isolate and say, well, everything's going to come from my immediate area, it'd probably be more expensive food. And, you know, I don't want to do that. So I just want to get people slowly eating better and figuring things out more about Southern food. So it's, it's a good trek right now. Yeah. So what are your hottest dishes? I mean, what are the things that people crave? Is it the fried chicken or is it this riff on what is fried chicken? Um, I'd say the riff on fried chicken is probably more popular, but you know, a lot of the food in the book is more food, but we do, there's food definitely that's done uh, at five and 10 a lot, but then a lot of the food is more food that is meant for home and fried chicken and stuff is generally stuff we do at home. We do variations of it once in a while at the restaurant, but what's out at the restaurant, I mean, you know, over time, frogmore stew and things like that, which is a variation of a low country boil. Yeah. Can you can you tell me more about what frogmore stew is? Because you also get into the etymology of these dishes. Yeah. And of these processes. So frogmore stew was uh, frogmore was a town um, that was pretty much overrun by Hilton Head, South Carolina, the development of, you know, vacation land, USA. Mm-hmm. Tennis courts abound. Um, so. As that happened, the old town of Frogmore, which there still is a little airport there, there was Frogmore stew, which was one of the ubiquitous low country boils. So it was, you know, corn on the cob, an andouille sausage, and local shrimp right there, uh, which would be Port Royal, um, and, uh, you know, potatoes, new potatoes, and leeks, and or leeks would be mine, but sweet <laughs> onions and uh, fennel. Fennel would be mine too. And, and Old Bay. So you stick it all in a pot. You pull out solids and eat them, and you jettison the liquid. Well, I was like, I mean, again, I was raised in French kitchens. So I was like, why on earth would you throw away all that liquid? Yeah, <laughs> you know. So we do it with less liquid. We do it with a really refined fish broth or clam juice and uh, t- fresh tomato juice and um, all the beautiful aromatics in there and we wanted to turn it on its head to kind of make more like a bouillabaisse yeah so and we succeeded really well and it won a lot of sort of you know attention and and whatnot but it's a really simple recipe and it's like that's what we do it's just simple food but it's funny hearing you say that because um with the french background obviously uh, it it is about being thrifty at some points too you're reusing but Southern cuisine, pot liquor. I mean, right? Yeah, it's, it's like gold. I yeah, mean, it's, yeah. And and to waste a liquid like that. I know. I know I've never really understood it. Yeah, and in, that's in, back in, to in the boils. particular. You yeah. know, there there is a recipe. Yeah. You follow that recipe, and you don't use anything yeah. from that recipe for another recipe. Yeah, and that's what and, kitchens have started changing in the yes. South. I mean, yeah, you're using everything. It's like. Uh, Nose to tail is one thing, but it's like now we're into like top leaf to bottom root. Yeah. And using everything in between. In the like, soil, yeah. in the air. Yeah, the exactly. Everything around it. So, but it's fun to talk about, you know, how we're using turnips these days. If we do, you know, buttered turnip greens with the tops, then we take the stems and we cut them really fine and do pickled turnip stem. And then we take the turnips and we do it, you know, the top half of it for a soup and the bottom half of it for, you know, butter roasted or brown butter turnips or whatever. So it's like, and then now with things, flowers going to bolt and things like that, utilizing before when flowers and plants and stuff went to bolt, we'd basically, you know, compost them through. But now we're clipping and serving all the flowers as edible flowers and salads and things like that. So it's like we're all changing the way we look at food. Yeah. And, you know, we're we're not left out in the cold in the south in that regard. It's like carrot top salad now it's, it's great you yeah. know it's fun but you know we wouldn't have thought about it five yeah. years ago right. yeah it's not no so much why. like uh, no you don't eat that part it's like now how can we eat yeah that how part? can we do that yeah yeah it's like we had a carrot dessert on the on for a while that had candied carrot tops on it it's like 
that's cool. Yeah. That works. So excellent. Yeah. We're gonna take a quick break and we'll come back and find out why this Canadian found home in Athens, Georgia. You've good, been listening good. to the food scene on Heritage Radio Network.com. We'll be right back. was sponsored by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Summertime is not the only time when barbecue is welcome. At S. Wallace Edwards and Sons, Sam Edwards has been working his magic on ribs, biscuits, pit-cooked cold pork, and much, much more. Add a few of their sides and the party is complete. Entertaining has never been so easy. To order, go to virginiatraditions.com. Welcome back to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here today with Hugh Atchison. 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 I don't know. I've been worried for the past couple days trying to say I, that name. I responded to that guy. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty easy. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, and you're pretty recognizable now having been on uh, Top Chef, right? Yes. Judging on the upcoming Top Chef. Yeah, I was Chef. on Top Chef Mastered for a season yeah. and was known as the sort of jackass of the show. Um, and then, <laughs> How uh, so? I don't know. I was the only one willing to have fun. Yeah, yeah. I, that's the way I look at it. Uh, yeah, I think I, that's the point of those I things. split America right down the middle on whether they like my one eyebrow or yeah. hate it. I don't really care. <laughs> um, and now, yeah, so I'm a judge on the season nine of Top Chef. So, you know, it's a, it's a fun diversion for what I do every day to yeah. get away and film that stuff and hang out with people. And they're, they're, it's a great group of people who produce that show. Yeah. It's a huge team and they're fun. They're pros. And, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's a it's a good break and it it fills restaurant seats, you know, yeah. in bigger cities, not in Athens. Athens is a small town. Yeah. It's going to fill its own seats. It'll do fine. But Atlanta, you know, you can always use a push yeah. in a big city and right glitzy restaurant in the middle of the city. So, yeah, who knows? So Athens always going to fill seats. There's community around there. Mm-hmm. How did you find yourself moving there? You know, um, I met Mary, my wife, when I was very young, and uh, we were we weren't married at the time, and we were just friends, and uh, but stayed in touch. Then in my early twenties, we um, she came up to visit and ended up moving up to Canada, and we um, she eventually, when we were about twenty six, twenty five, we got married. And decided that she would do graduate work down at, in Athens, at the University of Georgia in art history. So she was going to do her master's. And I was, at that point in time, had worked in a number of really, really great restaurants in Canada. But I was young, and I was a complete idiot yeah. and whatever. Where did you work in Canada? I worked at a place called Café Henri Berger, which is a very French place in Hull, Quebec, that was there for 
90 some odd years and then closed down recently. Uh, it was a great old, very old school, um, you know, they serving horse and partridge and pheasant. Yeah. And, um, I mean, really old school French place. So, um, big ambassadors hang out and kind of, but it was fun. It was great. You know, Philippe, the maitre d' and all, you know, all these people taught me so much about food. You know, well, you, you knew not to pronounce it and Henry Berger. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yes. That, that didn't get good, uh, good accolades. Um, the, you know, when you're making in a, in a restaurant environment where, you know, you're, Prep list contains making two consommes at age 22 and, you know, mise en place for every vegetable set in the whole restaurant and, you know, your soups and then prepping for gavanche and stuff like that. It's just you learn how to structure yourself. You learn a lot about the cores of food and you learn a lot about just the cores of French cooking. So, you know, when everybody's like, yeah, you're self-taught. No, I was taught in great French kitchens in that time. So, and then worked at a place called Maple on Cafe with my friend Rob, Rob McDonald, who was a young chef in Canada, who was a really, really talented chef. Eventually quit chefdom and uh, was last seen in one of my dad's graduate level economics classes. <laughs> um, so, and then, so we moved down to Athens and I worked at a restaurant there for two years, um, which was fine. It wasn't my own restaurant. I was working for somebody else. And the restaurant was uh, needed improvement in its food, but it was fun and it was a very busy restaurant. I mean, doing you know three hundred covers at night, and but at a small restaurant, it was a hundred seats, and learned a lot. Went out to San Francisco for two years after that. Learned a ton about food working at Mecca, and then opening up Gary Danko, uh, which is a great fine dining place where I wasn't there for very long, but it was important to work there for a little while. Um, in a lot of ways, I learned what I didn't want to do, <laughs> yeah, which was be a uh, militant soldier in a fine dining, um, you know, hellhole. Mm -hmm. Love you, Gary. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I'm sure he's listening right now. Too. I'm sure yeah. he is too. Uh, he's got nothing. He's gonna, yeah. Actually, we have a call. That's yeah. Gary Danko. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I, I think that uh, you learn a lot, and uh, so finally, I was San Francisco's awesome city. It's great. It is not great if you make, you know, a chef de cuisine salary in, you know, $30,000, $32,000 a year in, uh, be because what San Francisco is not great at is, is the middle. There's very, very poor and there's very rich and there's not much in the middle of San Francisco. There's not much equity. So, and it's hard to live in, um, you know, outer, outer Berkeley or, uh, you know, all and commute in all the time. So, um, even my commute within the city was really, really long. And we lived in the lower Haight and, uh, going up to Danko would take me an hour yeah. on bus. Oh, well, it was fine. Yeah, except bus over it's bar, it's yeah. fine if you're working a nine hour shift, but if you're working a 16 hour shift add an hour on each end for transport, and then you're like, wait a minute, I just got home and I have to be at work in four and a half hours. <laughs> <laughs> this is untenable. Yeah. So, yeah, eventually I got a call back from the woman who owned the restaurant that I worked in in Athens. She was like, well, I've got this lead on this restaurant space. And I'm thinking about opening something. Would you like to come be a partner there? And I was like, you know what? Sure. Yeah. So at the age of 27, I guess, I opened 5 and 10. And, you know, it was a restaurant. It was just, you know, it was open for not very much money. Uh, really small budget. It was kind of like... I couldn't afford managers, so I was going to be, everything was going to be kitchen-centric. 
everything was going to emanate from there. I was going to have to be the accountant and the bookkeeper and, um, you know, the plumber and the electrician and much what I see around here. Yeah. Um, you know, something breaks, I fix it and figure out how. But half of it was figuring out how. That was every day. Doing an ambitious menu for Athens, Georgia, with a lot of food that they hadn't really seen before. So sweetbreads were sold as really good chicken McNuggets. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Yeah. You should try skate wing. Yeah. Sometimes know, you just talk about the exteriors. Like that sweetbread is fried. So it's right. Fried. Yeah. It's crispy. Yeah, you like crispy? Yeah. You'll like this crispy. Yeah. So, you know, skate wing was, you know, you'd have people be like, you know, we throw this back in the south. Yeah, it's like well, I mean, but both those recipes are in the book and uh, yeah, make sense in the context of it too. Yeah, and they do, and you know, but in a lot of essence, they're so southern too. Those recipes, and they're so purist and simple and straightforward, and and that's what we reveled in. So you know, in in those early years, you know, I was the guy trying to find you know as many local purveyors as I could to bring me anything and it worked i mean we got a lot of stuff we still had to lean on some big broadline distributors for our guts and stuff like that but still to this day all the food stuff comes from locals and then you know but we still have to buy some other stuff shipped in and whatnot so it's not it, you know it was at a time where it was more difficult to, than it is to do it now yeah so. so but let's talk about things that are there like uh hominy Yep. Can you explain what hominy is, uh, what the process of making hominy is as well? Mm-hmm. It's corn soaked in a lye um, solution uh, or a lime. You can do it with culinary lime, like pickling lime. Um, basically, it's a nixtamalization process of corn. Yeah. Um, so the most common ground nixtamalized corn is going to be masa. Um, white grits or nixtamalized grits. Um so, but the hominy is whole kernel nixtamalized corn. So, often you'd find it in a can. You'd open it up, combine it with another can, and you'd have poor man's pozole. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, you can find beautiful dried corn and make it into wonderful hominy by just nixtamalizing it yourself. So, are you actually doing that solution. at the restaurant? Yeah, we buy dried corn from, um, uh, or dried hominy corn from uh, Glenn Roberts and Anson Mills. Who's, you know, Glenn's one of these guys who um, you call and an hour later after he's told you about the origin of every <laughs> grain yeah. that he knows of, uh, you're finally free. Uh, it, it, it's funny that farmers and organic farmers and people who are seed savers and uh, the wonderful people in my life, one of the, the things is they don't talk to humans that much. <laughs> <laughs> they talk to plants a lot. Yeah. Or and they animals. think they have to get everything out the first time, too. So yeah. you have to sit through that eight-hour yeah. opus lecture. Exactly, yeah. So it, so we we use hominy a lot at the restaurant. So, I mean, you can puree hominy into a really interesting soup. And um, uh, Though I still want to make that interesting soup better. <laughs> uh, and, but we use a lot of hominy as a simple hominy stew underneath things. But you mean, you can buy a canned hominy and it's fine if you don't want to go through the process. It's just not as good. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, it, but you know, in all those southernisms of the cadence of, of life and how you talk to your purveyors and, you know, called Alan, my favorite story about Alan Benton 10 years ago, I, uh, called Alan Benton and I said, well, I, I've heard of your hams and I want to order some of your hams. And well, that's great. Who are you again? Hugh Atchison. Oh, I've heard of you. Okay. 
So a week goes by. I get the hams, and 10 days go by, and I call back up there for another order, and Alan, somebody else answers the phone, and um, I say, can I speak to Alan? And they say, yeah, one moment. Alan comes on the phone and goes, hello, who is this? I was like, it's Hugh Atchison. Long pause. And Alan finally says, gets on the phone and says, you don't need to tell me your last name. I know who you are. Yeah. We met last week. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that's so Southern. It's yeah. just like you've, you've, you're entered into the fold of this conversation of food in the South. We're, we're dealing with each other again. Let's move on. Make this more efficient. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's great. But there's so many uh, Southern foodstuffs that we don't see that much up here, but they're starting to come up to Brooklyn and um, New York and the boroughs and, and become more popular in Chicago and places like that. So, you know, we use a lot of sorghum. Mm-hmm. Uh, we use a lot of muscadines and scuppernongs. Yeah. What, um, what are muscadine and scuppernongs? They're grape varietals, uh, very thick-skinned native grape varietals in the South. And if you go and have scuppernong or muscadine wine, it's generally made by somebody's uncle. And um, it's good. Yeah. I mean, it's great. They're on the sweeter side. And, uh, you know, they have big pits, um, big seeds. and But, you know, you learn to swallow the seeds. Um, you don't want to chew on them. They're really tannic. Um, and the thins, the skins are thick, but they have this beautiful f- flavor to them and just kind of musty, sweet, big, uh, but you can make jams out of them. You can do gelées out of them. Um, you can do all sorts of stuff. We pickle muscadines and scuppernongs. Um, we make wine with them. We make wine and then we make, distill it into eau de vie and, but don't tell anybody that. Um, so, <laughs> you know, again, no one's listening. Other yeah. No, no, damn Gary. Nobody's, nobody's, yeah. We don't have stills. Yeah. <laughs> now where we're from. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they're just another, but they grow, they grow like crazy down there. Yeah. So they're just kind of everywhere and they're beautiful flavors. Well, so. do you find it funny that, you know, uh, you're sitting down there trying to live off the land, um, that these things are now being exported as hot ingredients? Yes, always. I mean, it's funny to, to, to see things go to that point. If I go to another um, New York restaurant and see boiled peanuts on the menu out of season, I mean, boiled peanuts are supposed to be green peanuts. I mean, they're green. Yeah. Um, and they're, you know, people now are boiling semi-roasted peanuts or dried peanuts which is not really what they're supposed to be yeah. but you can still do it but you know those really dark boiled peanuts that's from them yeah but if you get beautiful green peanuts they're like silky white inside when you crack them open after you boil them they're awesome they're totally different flavor yeah we use one farm you know what's really hard to find is organic peanuts huh. yeah i don't know if they're just all grabbed for organic peanut butter by skippy yeah um but they're really hard to find so but there's uh, some great peanut farmers in Georgia. And, uh, you know, peanut farming stretches really all the way over to Texas. But I don't know what Texas got out of anything this year. It was such a drought there. <laughs> yeah. Man, it was such a bad, bad drought there. Yeah. So. But you guys had a good year with most of We the- had a generally good year overall. Yeah. Um, with things. Shrimping was not the greatest year. But uh, when they get them, they're beautiful. Yeah. I actually want to revisit boiled peanuts Mm -hmm. because one of the wonderful little surprises in this book is the boiled peanut hummus right and i mean where did you concept you know i think it just came from what i think about a peanut and a peanut to me is not a nut it's a legume and when we think of boiled peanuts i always think about those canned fava beans from italy um, you know, they're unshelled and everything. Yeah, they're yeah. just boiled. And they're really good, though. Yeah. But they're different. They're not like the French use fava beans. The French are fastidious with them, like we are. We take the outer casing off and then peel off the yeah. inner shell. Well, it feels like lupini beans for, for Italians. Exactly. So, yeah. 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 
Um, so same style. So in that way of the soft legume, I always thought that it's kind of like a chickpea. And so we just started messing around and I'd, I'd seen people do like butter bean hummus and stuff like that. But the boiled peanut hummus is really good. So it's, it's different. It's fun. Yeah. Um, I actually want to talk about the, the visual aspects of this book because yeah. I, I've heard from uh, people you've worked with at Clarkson Potter that you came there with a proposal, a professional proposal. Laid no, I wouldn't out. say professional. Yeah. I'd say a, a king doodler. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it ended up being a whole bunch of doodles in the book, too. So right. you must impress them with those doodles. But you, who did you work with as far as photos and illustration and plotting out the course of this thing? You know, we uh, we had this wonderful um, uh, photographer in Rin Allen, um, who is really, really skilled, and um, she's from Athens. Um, her brother's a big music producer. The family's just, they're just all uber-talented people. And Rin is just kind of multi-talented in so many different things. She's a great photographer, but great designer. She's one of these people who, you know, knits and makes all this crazy stuff, and she's just really cool. So we sat down about three years ago and was like, how can we create um, something? People don't know my name enough. Everybody's like, you're a household name. I'm like, yeah, within my household. Yeah. <laughs> um, and not much outside point. of yeah. that. <laughs> so um, so we wanted to get the name out there and be like, you know, let's create something that um, is not going to sit on somebody's desk. So we did this beautiful silkscreen folder with this 20-page full-color pictures and diagrams and recipes and a little bit about me and why the book was pertinent and then bullet points and all this stuff but it was full colors really attractive and then we took parchment paper and hand stitched you know the parchment paper around that so that i have to break open that and it was just it was one of those things that nobody could ignore on their desk they're yeah. like in stacks of white paper it was this like weird thing that was standing out and we sent it to eight publishers and I mean, we got a lot of offers based on that yeah and and not only did we get offers we got offers that said we want you to continue the vision of the proposal you put forward. So what do we have to do to get to that? The doodles actually more came later. They were like, you know, there were some sketches in the book that I had done. And they were like, we really like that. And we like your handwriting. Can you do more? And I was like, sure, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, we wrote the book ourselves. We drew all the stuff ourselves. There was no ghostwriter. There's no other artist involved. Um, Hable Constructions in the book a lot for some of the chapter openers, which Brooklyn-based yeah. company. And Susan Hable, one of the sisters who is Hable Construction, runs, lives in Athens now. And they're awesome, uh, just great people. So we have this amazing array of – we have what Brooklyn has in a lot of ways in, in a microcosm, in a tiny little speck of it in Athens, which is this great assortment of people who could live anywhere in this planet. They just choose to live in Athens in a community and do funky, cool work and – they need to get out of town. There's an airport an hour away and yeah. we fly to New York or we fly to LA and do stuff. So it's, it's good. And then the, uh, the pictures Rin just took pictures and I just wanted her to take, um, not overly styled photos, uh, not overly foodie photos. I just wanted sort of happenstance. I wanted my kids to be photographed playing with food, which is what they do every day. Yeah. And, the food to be pictured on plates that we actually eat off of and you know that sort of type of thing so i wanted that feeling to be honest and and, and not too stylized it's not who we are yeah well you know when when you read a cookbook and then you meet the author uh, the person behind it um sometimes there's parody but right. what made i think this interview so easy is because i read this book and i got exactly what i expected out of it right 
Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you for that. Well, thank thanks. you for projecting. Easily uh, done. You through this book for making such a great mark on Southern cuisine. Yep. Can't wait to see what you do in the future. There's, there's a lot to be done. I don't know. I'm going to be a dental hygienist. <laughs> yeah. They get more, they get more rest. Yeah. We'll, we'll have you on the dental show. On That'd this be station. awesome. <laughs> Excellent. Hugh Atchison. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. You've been listening to the food scene on heritage radio network.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at three. Cheers. Cheers.